Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. On this installment of the podcast, we will discuss the biblical definition of marriage and how most people, especially Christians, usually have it wrong. And on The Wire, I'm going to talk about Burger King's latest stunt to raise awareness and take a subtle dig at McDonald's that has some people upset. And that's just fine with Burger King. All that and so much more as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Bold Speak podcast as we're going to continue our study of condition of the heart that, that takes a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to say that I'm, uh, I'm especially glad that you've joined me today as, as we spend some time exploring some realities of our relationship with God that I, I honestly think are many times maybe misguided uh, by a church that desires to be or seems to desire to be increasingly more and more pharisaical. Now, what I mean by that is that we're going to discuss some things today about marriage, and, and those may challenge you, but I encourage you to listen to, to what I feel Jesus has to say about these topics and take some time to evaluate for yourself your views and thoughts on the topic. And you may agree or disagree with me, but either way, I hope that you take time to, to think about these things, because to me, these are the kinds of topics that our world struggles with quite a bit. So having some clarity on these things can go a long way in helping us to be the church to a world that is hurting, especially on topics of sexuality and marriage. Now, what we're going to be doing today is getting into the, uh, the, the next part of Lesson 4, and so that's going to be page 17 uh, in the study guide that begins with the, the small header, Law and Commitment. Now, that study guide that I'm talking about is a, a paper study guide that you can download digitally and print out for yourself um, that'll give you an opportunity to take down some notes and jot down some thoughts and ideas that'll help you as we move along here because the Sermon on the Mount is one connected message. So it's beneficial uh, beneficial to go back and, and see uh, maybe things that you've written down before um, and, and some of those uh, ideas that maybe popped into your head as we were talking and thinking through these things. So you can reference them later and really kind of get an idea for the um, kind of consistency and fluidity of this message throughout uh, Matthew 5 through 7. All right, uh, so if you don't have that uh, that study guide and would like to download it, uh, you can do that on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. Uh, it is $10 to, to purchase that, and that money goes to support this ministry so, uh, so we can continue to give you the best in, in Christian education and help you to uh, consider what it means to be the church and to, to, to engage in Bold Speak uh, with people to help people to see and, and feel and experience uh, the gospel in their lives. All right, so as I mentioned before, we're going to get into Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 48 today, uh, as well as several other places in Scripture that I'll direct you to as we go along. And as always, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, if you don't have an English Standard Version, that's totally fine. Just grab whatever translation you have that's your favorite uh, that helps you learn and grow with God. Uh, and I'll give you all the references to what we're going to be reading so that you can follow along easily. And if you don't have access to a Bible right now because maybe you're driving or engaged in something else, don't worry. I'm going to read all the references to you in the English Standard Version so you can follow along as easily as possible. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the first reading here, and that's Matthew chapter 5, just verses 31 to 32. It was also said... 
Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Question 7 asks, what is the issue Jesus is addressing here regarding divorce? Now, this is a bit of a complex question, and there's many facets to this that I want to make sure that we understand. And in order to do that, we have to go back a little bit and refresh our memory on what we've been talking about. Because these these sections here, this particular section of 31 and 32, actually goes with the previous section talking about the sin of lust. All right, so uh, let's kind of recall what we were talking about in the last podcast. Jesus' previous point was in regard to sexual sins, right? And he explained that looking at someone lustfully is equal to the traditional view of adultery, which is the actual sex with someone who is not your spouse. Now, uh, with that clarification in mind, Jesus is going to take things one step further. That is to say, what comes next is building off of Jesus' previous discussion. So, what does divorce have to do with the sin of lust? Well, a lot if you recognize what lust has to do with the act of marriage. All right, so let's get some clarity on that. Jesus begins this section as a continuation of the previous statement. And we know that because the text reads, it was also said. In other words, what it's coming, or what's coming here connects to the previous statement of you have heard that it was said. So what we know right off the bat is that Jesus is continuing a previously established point. That's why he's saying it was also said and then continues on, right? He then begins to talk about divorce and how the standard practice of divorce is to hand the spouse a, quote, certificate of divorce. In other words, in the minds of the Pharisees, divorce was about the contract and specifically the paperwork. To them, a certificate officially ends the marriage and allows both parties to exit the relationship guilt-free. It's more of a legal matter. And Jesus counters that with some clarification that is based on a right definition of marriage. See, Jesus' conversation about divorce is rooted in a right definition of marriage. And so that's what Jesus needs to give some clarity on. Right now, what Jesus wants them to kind of see, and by extension, what he wants us to know and see, is that a certificate doesn't make a divorce, just like a certificate doesn't make a marriage. So, what does make a marriage? Well, the answer is sex. If you go back and look at what we read on the last podcast from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, uh, verse 16 says this, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now notice the the, the verbiage there. He says the two will become one flesh. That's specifically connected and tied to the occurrence of Adam and Eve's marriage through the sexual act. So essentially what Paul is saying is that, don't you know that when you join yourself to a prostitute, when you have sex with a prostitute, you're marrying that prostitute. So you have to be very, very careful with what you do with your body, specifically in regard to the the act of sex. 
because what Paul knows and is communicating here in 1 Corinthians and what Jesus is explaining here when he's talking about divorce and knows about marriage is that sex is marriage. Now, this is the problem that Jesus is having with the way the Pharisees were presenting marriage. See, to them, again, it was a legal matter. Jesus is saying that it's so much bigger than that. It's a heart matter. And something I think that we need to clean up in the current culture of Christianity. And so what we see there, if you look in your study guide, you have marriage, and there's the reference to 1 Corinthians 6.16. What you see is that sex is marriage, and marriage is not some kind of a legal binding contract uh, that has to do with a piece of paper, but rather the relational reality as exemplified in the act of sex. And then under that, you see misuse of marriage. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to get at with the Pharisees is understanding marriage prevents you from misusing it. All right, there's a couple of things that we need to point out here. The first thing is, is that, you know, I guess the question of why is sexual immorality the only exception when it comes to divorce? Okay, so here's how we need to understand this. If you have had sex with someone else while you're married, you've already divorced your current spouse and found a new one. All right, it, it's... It, Sexual immorality is not some sort of exception because everyone can kind of feel guilt-free for divorcing because, you know, sexual immorality happens, so it's kind of like a free pass. Divorce is never what God desires, and there are no free passes. Sexual immorality is the exception only because, in that particular instance, divorce has already occurred. And so, in that way, it isn't making anyone commit adultery because they aren't married anymore, right? And whoever com right, sexually commits themselves to a divorced woman commits adultery because that woman is already married because they've had sex with someone previous, right? So what Jesus is trying to do here is, is show how sexual sins are far more prevalent and, and corruptible than the Pharisees could ever dream that they were, right? And, and it goes even far deeper than any sort of contract or, or legal matter. Right, so, so what does all this mean for us? Well, I think there's two important things that we have to recognize. First, we need to stop looking at divorce from the perspective of a contract, as if, you know, once the contract is ratified, uh, the, the divorce occurs, right? So once a, a piece of paper is issued, then people are divorced. In many cases, the divorce has already happened. The contract is, is just a formality. Desertion, adultery, all those things happened long before the contract. Right? According to Jesus, if you've ever looked at someone with lustful intent, too late, you already committed adultery. So the stigma around those who went through the formal contractual severing of a marriage, that needs to go away. If you had sex, for instance, with someone before you got married, according to the Bible, you too have already been married and divorced. See, marriage isn't the contract, and neither is divorce. Sex is what makes two people married, and we need to be willing to have open and honest conversations about the realities of marriage and divorce in the context of a right definition of marriage as offered by the Bible. Right? As far as I know, uh, Adam and Eve never had some sort of formal ceremony. No priest or pastor stood up in front of all the animals and did some sort of formal address with a message and a dedication and an exchange of rings. 
Adam and Eve were married because they engaged in the sexual act. The two became one flesh. Now, the implications for this on a lot of ideas that we have about sexuality are enormous, but there's one in particular that I think needs some attention. The idea of premarital sex, okay? If sex is marriage, then there is no such thing as premarital sex. Right? We have to stop talking about sex as if it's something separate from the marriage. Right? If sex is marriage, then premarital sex doesn't exist because if you have sex, you are married. All premarital sex does is makes people feel comfortable with uniting themselves fully with someone without feeling the consequences or repercussions of breaking the covenant of marriage. But if we stop thinking of marriage as a contract and start seeing it as the entire giving of oneself expressed in the act of sex, right, the two becoming one flesh, we'll then be able to, to have a significant conversation about the real problem of promiscuity and promiscuous sex and the fallout from it emotionally, uh, spiritually, and physically. All right, and in addition, we as the church will be more equipped to discuss divorce as it should be and see that there is an epidemic of divorce much larger than the, the certificates and legal documentation would make it seem. All right, now, in the efforts of, of full disclosure here, I, I have to let you know that this issue was a very personal issue to me as a divorced man. I didn't understand marriage when I entered into it and then faced the scorn of divorce when I filed the paperwork. Right? In some situations, unfortunately, I was treated pretty poorly by some people in the church because they had been taught marriage in all the wrong ways. And I don't blame anyone for their struggles because we as the church haven't done an excellent job about communicating the reality of marriage and, and what it is. But if we're going to lead with the gospel and, and help people to find mercy with the sin and recovery with the sin of divorce, and then as a result help uh, you know those who have been divorced or people just entering for the first time into marriage to find a healthy marital relationship in the future, we need to start having real conversations about marriage and divorce, right? Not, not as a contract, but as a reality of human relationships rooted in the sexual act, right? And, and it seems to me as I read through this that that's what Jesus is trying to explain to the Pharisees and to us. If you've been equating marriage and divorce with a piece of paper, you need to turn from that thinking and embrace the truth of what marriage and divorce truly are. Right? It's a heart matter, not a legal one. See, what Jesus is trying to do here is weed out all of the wrong thoughts about the law in order to rightly establish the gospel. It appears that Jesus' hope is that once we see that we are kind of all in a position of sin far greater than we imagined, then we can begin to sympathize with those who are looked down on for their sin and see that we're all in this mess together. And then, the ultimate goal, care for each other with the gospel, rather than kind of throwing laws in each other's faces in an effort to make us feel not so bad about ourselves and our own struggles with sin. All right? And so divorce is one of those areas that Jesus tackles in along, with along with sexuality to help us really get a grasp and understanding of the reality of the law and thus the beauty of the gospel. Right, and that, that's going to bring us to our next section here, which is Matthew 5, uh, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, 
You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Question 8 asks, In substitute to making oaths to God, the Jews would make oaths in the name of the following. What does Jesus point out about each? Now, if you look in the study guide, you'll see that there are four points below this question. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and your own life. All right, and, and so this is the point that, that Jesus is trying to make here uh, as he's going through this, this idea of kind of making oaths. All right, he's saying, look, these are what the Jews were kind of saying so that they wouldn't make an oath by God. Uh, they'd make an oath by heaven. I, I swear to heaven that this is whatever. Uh, they would make an oath uh, to the earth, right? I, I swear to the earth that this, or uh, Jerusalem. I swear by Jerusalem that this is true. Um, or I swear on my own life that this is the this is the case. In each of these scenarios, what Jesus points out is, if you're having to make an oath or, or kind of swear by something at all, your thinking behind not using God and using one of these other things is, is extremely misguided, right? Remember that heaven is the throne of God. So if you swear something by heaven, you're still swearing something by God because heaven is his throne. Well, what about the earth? Well, the earth is his footstool, right? It's what God created. It still belongs to God. And so making an oath or swearing by the earth is still swearing by God and therefore a sin. Oh, well, okay, well, what about Jerusalem? I swear by Jerusalem. Well, <laughs> that's the city of the great king, right? This is the, the place that God has has deemed the, the, the hub for the people of God. And so you're still swearing against God by swearing by Jerusalem. Okay, well, I swear by my own life. Nope, that's not yours either. Right? You don't have the power to make one hair white or black. Right? This is not something that, that you created. It's something God created. So swearing, again, uh, against your own life is swearing against God. And the point that he's trying to make here is that, look, you, you don't swear by anything. You just carry with you integrity. And so this gets us to the next question, question nine. What is Jesus' simple solution to the issue with oaths? His simple solution is, look, just simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right? If you say yes, mean it. Follow through. Be a person of integrity and honesty. If you say yes, do what you said yes to. If you say no, mean no. And follow through on that commitment. By making an oath to something just kind of seems to indicate that you aren't to be trusted, that you have to put something on top of your words in order to reinforce the fact that you're actually going to do or not do whatever you say you're going to do or not do. And Jesus is saying, look, you don't need that. If you are a person of integrity, if you're a person of follow through, then when you say that you're going to do something, you should just be trusted to do it. And if you say no, then you should be trusted to follow through with that as well. Just mean what you say and follow through, right? These oaths and these things, they just get you into trouble. 
All right, so let's go ahead and kind of build off of these ideas and get to the next section here on retaliation. And we're going to go ahead and read Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Question 10 asks, what is Jesus clarifying about the law of equal retaliation? Now, to understand the law of equal retaliation, I've provided you with some references to that law in Exodus 21, verse 24, Leviticus 24, verse 20, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. All right, I'm going to read these for you all in succession. You'll kind of hear the pattern repeated. All right, Exodus 21 says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24 says, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And Deuteronomy 19 says, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now what these are all describing is what's known as the law of equal retaliation. Essentially what's happening is that a limit is being placed on what you are legally able to do in retaliation for a sin against you. In other words, there should be what's known as proportionality. Your uh, act towards someone who sinned against you cannot be excessive and thus lead to escalation. Right? One person lies to another person, they get mad, they punch that person, that person gets mad, and so they start to beat the crap out of that person, and it escalates into the point of finality when someone is really genuinely hurt or dead. Right? In other words, things can escalate quickly. And so the, the law of equal retaliation is specifically intended to limit repercussions for sin uh, when a wrong occurs. Now, what you need to see is that these have context. So if you open your Bible and you look around Exodus 21, uh, 24, around Leviticus 24, 20, and around Deuteronomy 19 through 21, each of them is included with a conversation about due process. In other words, you are to bring these matters to a judge or the priest so that they can evaluate what happens. And then what occurs from there needs to happen in accord with equal retaliation, right? Again, the intention here is to prevent escalation. That's not what the Pharisees had been using it for. In other words, the Pharisees had been presenting the laws of retaliation more from the perspective of, well, you have a right to do these things. So if someone steals from you, you have a God-commanded right to steal from them. So go ahead. That's not what God intended. 
He wanted to prevent escalation, not give a free pass to people so that they could sin against others, feeling it completely justifiable because, well, they did it to me. And so Jesus is trying to help people to understand that. The way he's doing that is to say, well, look, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, but how about this? How about if someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek? How about if someone sues you for your tunic, you give them your cloak as well? How about if someone forces you to go one mile, you go two, and by so doing, you open up an opportunity. All right, what's the opportunity? That's what Jesus gets to next loving your enemies. See, in the situation where someone slaps you or someone sues you to take your tunic or they force you to go a mile, and that's a reference to uh, a reality of, of the soldiers at the time who would come to you and they could come to any any citizen and say, uh, I, I command you as a soldier for you to carry my equipment and, and you were legally required to carry that equipment for one mile. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you go one mile, why don't you, why don't you go two for him, right? Take the extra mile. Go the extra mile to show them love, care, and concern for them as a person. And it opens up an opportunity maybe for dialogue or, or something else in the future. All right, And so the idea of loving your enemies is saying, you know, don't, don't treat these people as your enemies, but rather treat them as people that you desire to be in relationship with for the sake of the gospel. All right, so look at question 11. Why is Jesus calling his church to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them? Right. The reality of here is that what Jesus desires and what he's telling his church is, is that ultimately what you want is not some sort of legal battle where you put yourself up against someone else as if other people who have, have wronged you are the enemy, but rather pray for them, right? Pray for them and love them in the, in the chance that they too might become sons of your father who is in heaven, Right? Notice that it says in, in 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons, plural, sons of your father who was in heaven. By loving them and praying for them, by not retaliating as if it's some right that you have, by caring for them, you then open an opportunity to bring them into the gospel and bring them into relationship with God. And isn't that the goal, right? Isn't that the goal of, of everything we are as the Christian church, to, to bring people in, right? And then he continues on. He says, look, you're looking at this all wrong, right? Your job is not to present yourself as some superior or in some way better than other people and to treat people as the enemy, but to love them, to bring them in. And, and when you think about loving you know, people and, and you say, well, you know, I, I love my family, well, yeah, it's easy to love your family. I mean, they're, they're your family, right? And this is where he says in 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have, right? It's, I mean, good, but you're, you're not really gaining anything. I mean, the tax collectors love other tax collectors, right? That's not really helping anyone, right? If you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others, right? Even the Gentiles do the same, right? They greet other Gentiles. But these tax collectors and Gentiles who you've been taught to treat as the enemy, right? They're the ones that you need to be reaching out for. They're the ones that you need to be going after. The, the lost, those who aren't a part of the church, those who feel outcast from the church, who don't feel uh, like they belong, those are the ones you need to go out and show. You're not 
an enemy. You're not um, someone who doesn't belong, but you, you are welcome here. And God desires relationship. And I am going to be the means by which God brings relationship to you because I'm going to be a vessel for the gospel. I'm not going to treat you like an enemy. I'm not going to treat you like an outsider, but as someone who I love and, and who belongs here. All right. And, and so that gets us friendly to question 12. What is the perfection Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 5, 48? What he's saying here is that we are called to love as God loves, right? In this regard, we are called to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And this encapsulates everything Jesus has been talking about previously, right? All of these ideas of, of anger, right? Being murder, of lust, being adultery. All of these things are showing us that we have uh, a responsibility to act lovingly um, toward people. We have a responsibility to, to act in a way um, that, that shows people the, the nature of the gospel and therefore to reflect uh, the perfection of God. Now, this is an impossible task for us, right? As, as sinners, we, we screwed this up when we woke up this morning, right? So, so what we need to do is put this now in a frame of reference of the gospel and what we truly need. And that's what Jesus is driving to, okay? And so that's what we're going to pick up on and discuss as we enter into Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting with, with next week's podcast. And, and we're going to develop these ideas further and, and get into something that I think is just absolutely incredible and, and vitally important uh, for the church to understand is, is what does it mean to be a, a hypocrite and, and what is hypocrisy? And then we're going to get into the Lord's Prayer, which is just, I, I can't explain enough, the most uh, one of the most critical and important parts of the scripture, uh, because I think prayer is another thing that, that we as the church have really sort of lost a true understanding of. So I hope you join me on uh, the next uh, week and the next several weeks as we continue to develop uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm, I'm excited to go through that with you. Now, uh, when people feel as if they, they need to be perfect, as we were just discussing, and don't fit that standard or any other standard that they have placed upon themselves, it, it can really stress people out. Uh, it can cause frustration, sadness, anxiety, and a whole host of other emotions that, that weigh people down. And to those of you out there who, who feel those things, Burger King wants you to know that they are with you. How? Well, that's the topic of this edition of The Wire. Burger King is taking a stand. Again. In the past, Burger King has been both applauded and jeered for their community-conscious advertising that focuses on issues they deem to be important. From net neutrality to LGBTQ issues, Burger King has been a corporation determined to raise awareness of a myriad of social justice issues. This month, they're tackling mental health, an issue that they and many others feel is a very under-discussed topic. In order to promote and begin a discussion on mental health issues, Burger King has decided to release what could be best described as not-so-happy meals. With branding and design that target emotions like anger and sadness, it's clear that Burger King is taking aim at the popular McDonald's Happy Meal. The intention behind the meal is to raise awareness that not everyone feels happy all the time, and, well, that's okay. Forcing happiness when someone is simply not feeling it is to ignore the difficult truth that they're struggling and need support. So, what do we do with this one? Well, uh, there's a lot to consider. 
on the one hand, uh, mental health is something that needs more discussion and invisibility in the public sphere. Anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues should be openly discussed and the stigma around treatment should be eliminated. I personally sought the assistance of a therapist for years around and following my divorce, and it was one of the best things I have ever done. My therapist helped me to clarify and identify uh, problems that, that helped me to, to, to be a better person and, and better able to handle the struggles I faced with my own sin and recovery from the trauma I dealt with as a result of life circumstances. I'm not afraid to discuss it, and neither should anyone else carry that fear. In that sense, I applaud Burger King's efforts to draw awareness to mental health issues and bring them into a space where people are comfortable discussing those issues without judgment. However, something needs to be clarified. What those who struggle with mental health need isn't awareness to the fact that people feel sad or angry or whatever. What they need is people to walk alongside of them and help them know that they're heard and find better mental patterns to learn to deal with the emotions they feel. As Ecclesiastes 3 explains, there's a time for every emotion under the sun. Sometimes people feel sad, frustrated, angry, discouraged, or any number of emotions. But we, as the people of God, should love and support those who feel those negative feelings with the confidence that God has overcome them all. What people who struggle with mental health need is help from those willing to walk alongside them. My question to Burger King is, is that what you're promoting? Or are these meals just a clever dig at McDonald's using the platform of mental health? Honestly, it seems to me that more people are talking about Burger King than mental health. Just an observation. Finally, if, if bringing attention to mental health issues is intended to tell society that we should just accept these emotions as incurable and, and just let people do whatever they feel, honestly, I'm not interested. In the commercial that Burger King released for the campaign, one woman is shown as being angry for being fired and is swearing loudly and publicly, making a scene and, and giving the middle finger toward the boss that she claimed is a creep. Now, are they insinuating that she was wrongfully dismissed? It seems so, but does that make her actions okay? Is Burger King saying that those actions are okay? I really hope not. Emotions aren't a free pass for bad behavior. Ladies and gentlemen, if you had a paramedic show up at your door because you were having a heart attack and the paramedic said to you, I'm sorry, my grandfather had a heart attack, and there are just too many triggers that are making me feel too sad to help you. Would you respond, well, it's okay. I can understand your mental health struggle, so why don't you just sit down and process those emotions while I slowly die in front of you? Mental health is a problem, but should never ever be an excuse. Look, if you need your schedule adjusted at work because you need therapy, your employer should work with you to help you figure that out. And for them to refuse to do so is wrong. But on the other side, if you're claiming that mental health issues are an excuse for you to not do the right thing, that's just wrong. Feeling angry is one thing. Controlling it and acting like a civilized human being is something else.
So feel what you feel, but don't turn it into an excuse to do whatever you please, regardless of whether it's right or wrong. Right and wrong still exist, regardless of how you feel. So I hope this campaign does get a conversation going about mental health. I hope that people see this as an opportunity to remove stigmas and genuinely engage in a conversation about how we can embrace people with an attitude of help when they struggle with all sorts of emotions. But I sincerely hope this doesn't turn into feelings being the justification for sin as if your emotions are a free pass for anything. We should always lead with love, no matter what we feel. Remember, our sin makes God sad, but he still chose to love and save in spite of the sadness. That's all for this edition of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thanks again for joining me. Make sure you connect with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash the Bold Speak. Get connected to us on our website at www.theboldspeak.com and make sure you subscribe to this channel and all our media channels to make sure you stay up to date on the latest information, news, and media as it's released. As always, everyone, I'm Anthony Creedon, and that is the Bold Speak.